We get it. Attention spans just aren't what they used to be. Heads in social media and eyes on Netflix. But what do people do with their ears? Well, for one, they're listening to audio. Americans spend 4.4 hours with audio every day. Oh, and you want the proof? Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com. Home and home. The biggest story in all of sports is not a story baseball would like us talking about. And that, of course, is the Houston Astros sign-stealing scandal. All teams continue to speak out against the Astros. No one in their corner at this junction, juncture. And Rob Manfred, MLB commissioner, is not helping matters. In fact, an easy argument could be made. He is continually making matters worse and has from the very start. And it all comes down to a press conference and specifically an interview he gave with Carl Ravage of ESPN, where he attempted to quiet the controversy but in my eyes, made it worse on several regards. Here is the commissioner. We'll talk about it on the other side. I don't absolve the players of responsibility. I think that in their comments, at least some of them, um, you can see the fact that, that, that they understand uh, they have a fundamental obligation to play within the rules. Um, and I, I don't think any of them feel like they've been absolved, frankly. We found no evidence, not a single witness um, who could corroborate that there were buzzers being used during the 2019 season. Indeed, that they were doing anything inappropriate during the 2019 season. Um, given that the players told us, you know, chapter and verse about 2017 and chapter and verse about 2018, um, it does give some credibility to the de denials that were uniform uh, about the use of buzzers in 2019. Um, can I tell you 100% certain that um, it didn't happen? Uh, no, you can never know that. You got to, you know, people tell you what they tell you. I, I, I will tell you the evidence on this issue um, was as consistent in the direction that nothing was going on as the evidence was consistent in the direction that there was inappropriate behavior in 17 and 18. I don't agree um, that the disciplines were weak. Um, I, I, I really don't. I think that the disciplines um, are strong enough that they will deter people from engaging in this behavior going forward. Um, I think that you need to, to think about the overall context in terms of what's been done to people's reputations, what they're going to have to answer questions about, arguably for the rest of their lives. The idea of, you know, an asterisk or asking for a piece of metal back um, seems, you know, sort of a futile act. People are always know that there was something about the 2017 World Series uh, that was different, and they're going to know that because whether we made every decision right or wrong, um, we undertook a really thorough investigation and we had the intestinal fortitude to put out there the facts we found, even though they weren't very pretty. Speaking of not very pretty, nothing about that interview was very pretty from MLB Commissioner Rob Manfred. He should be fired. I'm not the first to say it and I certainly won't be the last. He has hurt the entire sport 
He has brought the entire sport against one organization. He has not made one good move from the very start of this to the very finish. And I can't think of one reason not to fire Rob Manfred. It's not as if when you look at Roger Goodell and any criticisms that have been thrown his way over the years, Roger Goodell's job is to protect the shield and to make owners rich. And he has done that from the very start. And what has Rob Manfred done here? He has hurt the reputation of the entire game. We'll circle back to that comment there about the trophy being a piece of metal. But Rob Manfred should be fired for his handling of this scandal and for his arrogance to the media and for his arrogance to every other team in Major League Baseball. It's been ugly. It's been brutal. And here's a couple of things not a part of that sound. Rob Manfred said it was late 2018 that he first started to hear rumors of the cheating scandal. I've said it before, and I'm not going to run from it now. That is a flat-out lie. There is no way, there is no how, Rob Manfred, the commissioner of baseball, didn't hear these rumors as they were happening. There was a freaking trash can being hammered on at every Astros game. Jose Altuve, some of the best-known players in baseball, we're hitting home runs after that sound. We have now heard that 10-plus teams around Major League Baseball had suspicions. And according to the Washington Post, several of them reported those suspicions. So he's lying. He's flat out lying, even now faced with questions, now that we know all that we know. And one more thing, Ross. He said that the public airing of the cheating scandal was the worst part of the Astros punishment. I cannot believe how out of touch and how arrogant Rob Manfred has been and he has turned the entire sport against one team, almost uniting all of them, but it has been a debacle. I can't say one good thing about how he's handled this scandal from the very start. So this guy's done several things that are not real bright. And the things that bother me the most are the way he sort of snarkily uh, addressed a reporter that got the letter that Manfred sent to Astros GM Jeff Lunau that made it clear that the GM and the front office was aware of Operation Codebreaker or the dark arts or that this algorithm had been created or whatever which is a really bad look for Manfred as well as MLB because they came out and tried to make it seem like it was all about the players. It was all player driven that. And when he says, you know, I'm not gonna, it seems silly to me to take away some piece of metal, which by the way, that piece of metal, that's like the whole goal. That's like what this whole thing's about is to win the World Series and to win that piece of medal for him to not understand how poorly that would be received by players, fans, everybody to dismiss what is the end goal that everyone's trying to achieve as a piece of medal is so poor, Dave, it's almost beyond words. Now, there are some things I think people are a little hard on him for. Like, I do believe 
these Astros players having to answer questions about it, be asked about it, have people know about that for the rest of their lives, I do think that's pretty significant punishment. And I don't think suspending them for 20 games or 40 games, I'm not sure that that, like, here would be my question, Dave. First of all, how do you suspend the players not knowing the level of involvement for all of them? Secondly, if you do suspend them, how much are you suspending them for? And I would submit to you that let's say they suspended them for 25% of the season, okay? 40 games. You know, I think that almost, I don't want to say it helps those guys, but I don't think those guys, I mean, I'm sure they wouldn't be happy about losing that money, but I think that they, on some level, wouldn't mind not facing the wrath of the away team fans for the first 40 games, including the first 20 road games, because that's when it's going to be its worst. And that's when the scrutiny and the vile and everything's going to be its worst. I don't think those players would mind, you know, missing out on that and then coming back when that's died down a little bit. So on some level, I don't have a huge problem with him saying, you know, the scrutiny, the criticism, the scarlet letter, if you will, is is the worst part of this for the players. Because I, I think it is. I mean, it would be for me. Like, that that would be worse than being suspended 20 games or four, whatever it is, would be having everyone I know from my hometown, everyone I know everywhere, branding me and looking at me as a cheater and having to face them forever now. So I agree with him on that part of it. Right. No, I'm not going to disagree with you there, but this wasn't Rob Manfred, and this wasn't Major League Baseball that aired the cheating scandal. It was thanks to internet detectives and reporters across the, across the country. They're the ones that aired this details of the cheating scandal. Now, if Rob Manfred had been um, up, up front and honest about what happened, when he knew it, exactly what happened, who cheated, who didn't, I would agree with you. But it was not Manfred. It was not Major League Baseball that actually cleared up the details of what happened. I mean, think about John Boy Media, our good friend on YouTube. He is the one that has put out the most detailed analysis of what happened. It's not thanks to Major League Baseball, that we know anything about this scandal. So I just disagree with his perception of what, and now you do bring up a good point about, would it have actually helped the players if they were punished? I do believe it would have. I do believe it would have helped the players most notably if they would have found a way to take away that piece of metal. To take away the World Series, I think, would have helped the rest of the league deal with what happened. Now, what do you do with it? Do you award it retroactively to someone else? I'm not sure you can do that either, but I do think you should take away that World Series. I think you should take away the banner. And that certainly would help the public perception of this. But what Manfred also told Carl Ravitch is that that infamous memo that was sent to the Houston Astros to warn them about what not to do? Well, he says it was never shown to the players. Now, I don't know if we can believe that or not, but that's what the Houston Astros told Manfred, that ownership 
and general management, they did not show the memo. It never made its way to the players. So that clearly reminds us that the commissioner didn't punish the front office nor the ownership enough if they didn't relay that memo to the players. That sounds insane. Now, circling back to the piece of metal, Justin Turner, Los Angeles Dodgers, they've been wronged by the Astros in consecutive seasons. Turner weighed in on that ridiculous comment by Manfred. What should have happened was, uh, you know, the commissioner vacated their championship and then we move forward and we don't have to worry about guys getting hit. We don't have to worry about anything. It's, it's taken care of. You know, calling the World Series trophy a piece of metal. Uh, I mean, I don't know if the commissioner's ever won anything in his life. Maybe he hasn't. But the reason every guy is in this room, the reason every guy is, you know, working out all offseason and showing up to camp early and putting in all the time and effort is specifically for that trophy, which, by the way, is called the commissioner's trophy. So... For him to devalue it the way he did yesterday is, is just tells me how out of touch he is with, with the players in this game. And, you know, at this point, the only thing devaluing that trophy is that it says commissioner on it. I mean, I think it's. Wow. Strong sound there from Justin Turner, Los Angeles Dodgers. Huh, Ross? Absolutely. I love that guy. It, it, I mean, that comment about the the piece of metal I, I like what is going through your head when you say that and you're Rob Manfred I I don't get it I don't get it at all and then to say you know I, I agree with Turner they could vacate the World Series they probably should right I mean whether you take back the piece of metal or not they should not have that they those guys should not have that because you know why Dave they all they blatantly cheated. We all know it. They already have the fond memories. They already got to celebrate and have the parade and all that stuff. It really wouldn't be that big of a deal to them, but it would make everybody else feel better. I mean, the Astros wouldn't be happy about it, but they'd be like, all right, I get it. Yeah, we did cheat. You took away our, you vacate it. You take our trophy. Those guys still got everything that came with it. So that's what the punishment should have been. Forget the, you know, suspending players 20 games, 40 games. I, I don't really care about that. They should have vacated the trophy and stuff. But let me just say one more thing about this guy, Manfred, okay? And by the way, Dave, you know me well enough to know, like, I, I see the positive in people. I try to give people the benefit of the doubt. Like I, I I'm even saying um, I understand what he's saying about the scarlet letter that those guys have to wear. But when people are this clueless, okay, you know, he was asked a question by Jared Diamond from the Wall Street Journal. And Jared is the guy that found the letter from, you know, somehow got the letter from Manfred to Lunau that made it clear that the Astros front office was involved. So he asks Manfred a question at this press conference. And, and Manfred says, uh, nice reporting on your part, you know, which was clearly sarcastic and finished it up by, by saying that was a private letter to a, I'll read the exact quote. 
you know, congratulations. You got a private letter that, you know, I sent to a club official. Nice reporting on your part. Like, hey, Rob, you're trying to be sarcastic. Dude, that is nice reporting on his part. Is there going to be a lawsuit filed on behalf of Mason Rudolph against Miles Garrett? Let's ask Darren Heitner, sports attorney. Check him out at Heitner Legal. Darren, great to have you on the program. Uh, first off, Mason Rudolph responded on Twitter to the allegation, quote, 1,000% false, bold-faced lie. I did not, have not, and would not utter a racial slur. This is a disgusting and reckless attempt to assassinate my character. Does that sound to you like legal action is forthcoming? Well, good morning, gentlemen. So the use of keywords like reckless and assassination of character are certainly calculated by both Mason and his agent, who also happens to be a lawyer. And you can even look to his agent's tweets that also use language that are sincerely calculated uh, for a defamation cause of action should they decide to bring one. Now, we don't know whether or not Mason will just drop this or actually litigate, but certainly he and his agent have thought about it because they were very careful <laughs> as to the language that they included in their tweets. And look, Mason is a public figure. I don't think that there's any doubt whatsoever that if you're in the National Football League, and in particular, if you're at the quarterback position, you are a public figure. So it would make his defamation claim a bit harder than a normal defamation claim brought by a private figure. But again, these are things that will need to be hashed out only if a lawsuit is filed, and we're not sure whether there will be one or not. All right, so Darren, let's talk turkey then. What would the lawsuit be? Is there any precedent for it? What could damages be? What are we talking here? So there's a lot of precedent with regard to defamation actions. And in particular, this would be a slander action because we're talking about commentary that was uttered orally as opposed to in written, which would be libel. So that's the distinction there. If he were to bring a claim, he'd have to, one, show that there was a publication, which obviously there was because Miles Garrett went on national TV. Not sure quite why he needed to, but he did it. Um, there, it would have to be a false statement of fact, which obviously Mason Rudolph has taken the position that Miles Garrett is being untruthful in stating that uh, Mason Rudolph uh, said a racial slur. And there needs to be reputational harm, which goes to the assassination of character reference in Mason Rudolph's tweet. But in addition to that, as I mentioned, because he's a public figure, Mason Rudolph would have to show that Miles Garrett had actual malice in, in saying that false statement of fact, that Mason Rudolph uttered a uh, racial slur. And that goes to an issue of intent. So if Miles Garrett truly believes that Mason Rudolph said it, then you can't show that he knew that it was a false statement or that there was reckless disregard. And I think that's really where, what this boils down to. It's a very difficult claim to make because even if Mason Rudolph didn't say it, Miles Garrett seems to be committed to this position that he said it. And so while he may not have any backup that he, that he actually said it, can Mason Rudolph essentially prove a negative? And that's the, that's the complex part of this. Miles Garrett said that it was uttered while they were going down. Was there anyone in close proximity 
that heard what they said and would the crowd noise and everything else that got in the way probably interrupt what anyone heard. I think it's a very, very difficult case to prevail on. Heitner with us. Check him out, heitnerlegal.com. What is the burden of proof here? And is this simply a civil issue? Could there be anything criminal involved? No, I think this is strictly a civil issue. I, I can't imagine that there was any sort of criminal action that was that was taken, um, and certainly that wouldn't be up to Miles Garrett to bring. That would be up to a prosecutor. And I, I again, I can't envision that occurring. So we're talking about civil a civil case and potentially monetary damages. The burden is on the plaintiff. The burden would be on Mason Rudolph to prove, as I mentioned, all the elements of a defamation claim, and importantly, that actual malice element. And I think that's the incredibly difficult part of all this. Unless there's some smoking gun out there, perhaps Miles Garrett admitted to somebody else that this was all fabricated. In that circumstance, absolutely. Mason Rudolph would have a slam dunk case. But without that, I think he'd have a very tough time proving actual malice. And without that key element, in a public figure defamation case, the case will ultimately fail. Mason Rudolph may be able to get past the motion to dismiss phase, maybe get into some discovery, but there's probably not much to discover unless there were some microphones that would capture any of the audio, and we don't, we're not aware of any of that. So it sounds like, Darren, your recommendation would be, hey, Mason, this stinks, but it'd be a waste of time to try to go down the lawsuit route. You know, I, I, I think Mason and his agent did the right thing in responding publicly and identifying the elements of a defamation action. But I also at this point is probably to let it go uh, by responding. They're doing what they can to rehabilitate the reputational harm that's allegedly been caused by Miles Garrett. What I can't understand is why Miles Garrett would not only double down, but essentially triple down. He first said this in the appeal hearing then uh, reiterated it in a tweet, and now after being reinstated, once again uh, supported this, this claim in the national media. So I don't quite understand his position. I do understand what Mason and his agent have done, but yeah, I think the best thing is move on, hope Miles Garrett doesn't bring this up again, and play football. Real briefly, I don't know if you've studied the uh, case, the uh, pitcher, former pitcher who's suing the Houston Astros. His name is Mike Bolsinger. He is suing the Astros because of the sign-stealing scandal. He says um, he came in the game, that sign-stealing scandal, they crushed him and essentially ended his Major League Baseball career as we know it. Does that lawsuit have any legs? Does any lawsuit against the Houston Astros related to that sign-stealing scandal have any legal legs? That's going to be a very tough one. I am familiar with the case. Um, I do think there is a potential that it gets past the initial phase of any sort of motion practice to try to dismiss the lawsuit, because obviously we know that the sign-stealing uh, issue took place, that individuals outside of the Astros organization were negatively affected. I think the, the biggest issue here is causation. But for this occurring on that particular day, would this pitcher have stayed in Major League Baseball? And what was his earning potential had he stayed? How long would he have stayed? There's so many unknowns and so much speculation required in this type of case that ultimately I don't think it is a winner. 
But perhaps if it gets past the motion to dismiss phase, it's something that the defendants would want to throw some money at just so that, one, they don't have to spend their own money in defending the case, and two, they don't have to open themselves up to additional discovery. Yeah, now Bolsinger was struggling around that time, but did appear that outing in which he was knocked around by the Astros did appear to end his career. I always thought, Darren, that lawsuit would stand better as a class action. There are a lot of pitchers who may have claims. Would that be potential if they group together and form some sort of class action suit against the Astros? Interesting question. I don't know that they would necessarily be certified as a class by a court. Obviously, that's one of the first steps that's necessary in a, in a class action lawsuit. Um, you know, they would all be pitchers, as you mentioned, but commonality would be a concern because all these have to face these batters are obviously they have different skill sets, uh, different histories, and different projections. And so I think there would be some difficulty in certifying that that class for this particular issue. It's it, it can be distinguished from the minor league class action that we've seen with regard to the payment of wages, because there, obviously, there is uniformity with regard to the lack of payment, um, and there is a ceiling on on which they would be paid. Here, there's such disparity between the various individuals who would be suing. So I think there may be a, an issue on certifying the class, which would take up a considerable amount of time. Yeah, I'm curious, my burning question for the Alpha Eagles, how close do they feel they are to winning a Super Bowl? Because if they think they're one guy away and they want to fill those two big holes, corner and wide receiver, do they have to fill them in free, via free agency or via the draft? It's an outstanding class of wide receivers. Can't imagine they fill their needed cornerback through the draft. Let's ask Ike Reese, former all-pro linebacker of the Eagles, host of WIP Sports Radio in Philadelphia, what his burning question is this offseason. Ike Reese, great to have you on the program as we start our All-32. What's your biggest question, your burning question about the Eagles offseason? Hey, fellas, thanks for having me uh, on the show. I guess if I had one burning question uh, about the Eagles this offseason, um it would be for me, I guess, how do you sort of uh, revamp this wide receiving core? You know, what are you going to do to uh, to remake the identity of this wide receiving core? What do you want the identity of this receiving core uh, to be? They have two fantastic tight ends uh, that you're going to add to the repertoire of bringing Deshaun Jackson back. Uh, what did you do with Alshon Jeffrey? Uh, they're probably not going to bring Nelson Aguilar back. Uh, what is J.J. Ortega-Whiteside? Um, and, 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 you know, the receivers that may come on the open market, um, are you going to spend money there? They certainly are going to draft a wide receiver, but where would they draft the wide receiver? See, when I hear how deep of a receiver class it is, I look at that t- uh, two different ways. A, yeah, there's a lot of receivers there, but the Eagles could also say, well, there's enough talent there that I don't have to get one in the first round. I can wait to the second round to get one and address another position. They love to address uh, D-line, cornerbacks, situations like that with those first-round picks, so you just don't know what they're going to do. 
they they have a lot of money, a lot of draft picks. You know, I heard before I came on, you guys talked about the potential of double-digit uh, new personnel coming in. I, I absolutely expect that to be the case. I, I really do. Uh, the two words that I think have hung over this team and has been a curse of some sort, as great as it was when it happened, is Super Bowl. You know, we need to stop talking about this team as if it's that team. And that's part of the problem. Uh, the front office still holds on to 2017, personnel-wise. The magic that happened there, thinking that you can duplicate that, and that's the formula for success. I think they need to wipe the slate clean as best they can, keep around as much talent that still has productive years left in them moving forward. But you got to almost rid yourself of that Super Bowl sort of team. You gotta, you gotta start this thing anew and start fresh and get some people in here that's hungry that want to win their first Super Bowl. Ike, really interesting to hear you say that. Always good to talk with you, buddy. So let let's talk turkey then, because um, I, you know, it sounded like Howie Roseman is gonna make a bunch of changes. What does that mean in your mind for guys like Jason Peters, Alshon Jeffrey, Rodney McLeod? Malcolm Jenkins, all these guys that that may or may not be back. It sounds like you think most of those guys, if not all of them, won't be back. Yeah, I, I think the majority of them won't be back. Uh, if there's one guy that I would try to find a way to squeeze two more years out of, it's Malcolm Jenkins. Um, obviously, he's not the player he was two years ago, but I think his leadership is invaluable. Uh, his availability uh, week in and week out, uh, I think it's something you can't overlook. He's managed to take good care of his body. Uh, with the way the uh, NFL is going on the defensive side of the ball, I actually think he fits into that little role of quasi-linebacker safety. You know, he's getting a little older. I think you can put him in that position where he's more of a box guy and you don't get him exposed out in man-to-man coverage as much. You know, I, I would I would much rather them find a way to come to a economical uh, uh, means and, and, and be able to keep him here. They aren't going to overpay for him. The Malcolm has to be realistic. But I, I hope they would find a way to be able to bring him back. Everyone else, I think it's time to go ahead and move on from some of those veteran guys and get to, get some new blood in here. Um just, just so that, just so that you, you, you don't have that feeling of well, we did it in 2017, we did this in 2018, we'll be able to do it. This team has been notorious for getting off to slow starts the last two years, and a lot of it has to do with this comfort level of well, we were able to pull together the second half of the season, we'll be able to do that again. And that is critical. They have to get out to a to a faster start. Eagles started three and four last season. Ike Reese with us, former All-Pro linebacker with the Eagles, host at WIP Sports Radio in Philadelphia. Obviously, a glaring need at the cornerback position. Do you see them trying to make a big splash there? Darius Slay reportedly being shopped by the Lions, a former All-Pro, three-time Pro Bowler. Do you expect Howie Roseman to get in the running for Slay? Yeah, I certainly do. I expect him to be making phone calls. You know how he's going to do his uh, do his due diligence, and he typically 
is jump is ready to jump on a deal when he feels like it's beneficial to the Eagles. I don't know if this is a great year for corners in the draft. Uh, I think the best way to go would be through free agency or through a trade for a guy like Darius Slay, who probably has a few more good years left in him, can probably benefit from a new new address, a new environment, playing with a team like the Philadelphia Eagles. Uh, I can certainly see that being beneficial. I certainly would like to have at least one guy out there uh, playing cornerback that I don't have to worry about every week. And, and a guy like Darius Slay, Byron Jones, James Bradbury, you know, guys like that, I, I certainly expect the Eagles uh, to be in the market uh, to upgrade their cornerback position before we get to the draft. Like, how are you, how, how are you feeling about this team right now? You know, I, I know we were all excited about them going into last year. Felt like it was an unbelievably talented team. Heck, even... Doug Peterson said on WIP radio that it was a more talented team than the 2017 team that won the Super Bowl with all the injuries. It didn't play out that way. And there's a lot that has to happen in free agency, the draft. So we'll know a lot more certainly in May. But right now, going into that stuff and based on how the season ended, how good or bad, for that matter, are you feeling about the state of the Eagles franchise? I feel good about the Eagles. I do. I really do, Ross. And it's not necessarily because of all the personnel that's on the team. Um, I feel good about the most critical positions not being a question. You know, my quarterback. Uh, I don't have a question there. I think the offensive line, we're going to get a chance to see Andre Dillard. The other four spots are pretty much intact, but we're going to, Andre Diller has to step in there. So I feel good about the offensive line. I think we need to bring Vatai back. So it'll be interesting to see what they do with him, uh, what what he gets offered, or even even if the Eagles allow him to hit the open market, I'd be surprised at that. So um, I'm interested in that. I'm, I feel good about that. I'm a little concerned about the wide receiver position being a little older, banged up, not really having the type of offense that I want. I think we all want what like the Kansas City Chiefs has and what the uh, even with the San Francisco 49ers have from a play design uh, look. You sort of want that on the offensive side. But I feel good over there. Doug's there. I am I'm I'm, I'm kinda excited and interested in seeing what these new coaches are gonna bring. Uh, the, the the new assistant coaches they brought in, what type of flavors they add to the offense. I'm I'm interested in that. And then on the defensive side I think here's where Howie's going to play a huge role is that he has some money to go out and try to fix some issues on that side of the ball as well as a lot of draft capital. And uh, I think there's an opportunity there for them to upgrade on that side of the football. But in this league, if your offense is your driving force, you know, a, a serviceable defense, you can win with a top ten defense, and Jim Schwartz is a good enough coordinator that he he can get you a top ten defense with the assets and things they have available to them to acquire players. But on the offensive side of the ball is where this thing is going to be driven. And on that side of the ball, I feel pretty good about uh, the questions I have there. Um, I think they are fixable, fixable questions. The receiver position, I think that's something that they can be able to fix this all season. Uh, there's a lot of talent available to him, and I think Howie is going to go out there and do what he needs to do 
to uh, put a put a winning team on the field next year. The one thing I know about Howie Roseman, man, is that you know he is a prideful uh, GM slash president, right? So he's putting the team together, and the product that goes out there on the field is a reflection of him. And uh, you know he certainly wants to put the best available talent on the field that he can. He took some swings last year; they didn't work out for him. I think he's going to try a new approach this year. Uh, but he's never going to stop trying to put a team out there that can compete for a title. I expect the same thing next year. As long as you have Wentz back there and he's healthy, this is a playoff team. Ryan Blaney up behind Ryan Newman. Ryan Newman off turn four for the final time. Blaney to the outside, oh. to the inside. Here comes Hamlin up the outside. Wow. Crash into the wall, into the air goes oh. Newman. Upside down. In a shower of sparks on his roof, Ryan Newman comes across the line, fourth, and comes to rest. Newman got turned, went up in the air, as he came down, was hit by another car, and launched skyward, coming down on his roof. The AMR safety team is there quickly to attend to Ryan Newman. That was the call on Fox Sports on Monday. Folks, it was terrifying watching this race. I do generally watch the Daytona 500 each and every year and was watching it yesterday and could not believe what I was seeing. Again, 20 years ago, that driver does not survive. We all think back about the great Dale Earnhardt, but the cars are incredibly safe now. But it brought up an interesting question for NASCAR and how you handle that. <laughs> Denny Hamlin's in winner's circle celebrating and confetti's raining down on him as medics are rushing out to the track. I thought personally a very bad look if you are a NASCAR, but Ross, I'm not sure how any sport should handle that. I guess there's no real equivalent. We can't imagine a Super Bowl being clinched just as a devastating injury happens. I know you're not a NASCAR fan, but how should a sport handle that? It's their Super Bowl, and you've got a massive injury. Uh, Ryan Newman in the hospital in serious condition now, but how should they have handled winner's circle? Yeah, I think that's a tough one, Dave, because you're not really sure how bad it is. And as you said, the cars are so safe now that we're almost used to seeing bad crashes and guys just like get out of the car and walk out. And you're like, what? I'm amazed when I see these guys, the car flips over three or four times And the guy, like, hops out of it. I'm like, how is that even possible? But because of those roll cages and and the belt system and everything, those guys are incredibly safe in there. And so I, I think the assumption is that the guy is okay. I don't know if that's right or wrong. But the assumption is that it's not serious or life threatening injuries. And so I think that's why they celebrated, you know, and also in those situations, they're not like worried about let's get the communication of his injuries to the winner's circle so they know whether or not it's appropriate to celebrate, you know, and and I, and I, I think you can make the argument that as long as there's a guy in some type of injury or accident scene, 
there should be no celebration. I think that's a a fair position to take um, until you know that the guy's okay. Maybe that is the position that they should take. I don't know. I think given the situation that it was Denny Hamlin's second straight and third overall Daytona 500, I thought it should have been handled differently. I thought they should have canceled the celebration, the victory lane, the confetti raining down on Hamlin. I think maybe it's different if you have a driver winning his sports Super Bowl for the first time, a moment he will never get back. But yeah, look, I don't think they knew how serious it was, but given how frightening that crash looked, they probably should have handled it better. Thank God Ryan Newman is non-life-threatening injuries in serious condition. One hopes he's able to return to the track someday, but it would be surprising. Larry McReynolds is a Fox Sports NASCAR analyst, a legend in the sport himself. He was on WFNZ in Charlotte, North Carolina, talking about what happened and the sports handling of it. Denny Hamlin, of course, wins his second consecutive 500, three out of the last five which quite honestly is unprecedented. But to see that crash there at the start-finish line with Ryan Newman in his sixth car, uh, definitely one of the scariest crashes that that I've seen in a long time. You, you know, we see cars get up in the air. We see them get up in the catch fence. But I guess when I saw him coming back down with his left side, of course the car was still upside down, and the left side, his left door, right at traffic and Corey LaJoy in the 32 car absolutely nowhere to go was just along for the ride and a victim as well and hit that six car riding the door it it was it was very scary but to your point uh we stayed at the studio we came on the air the minute Steve O'Donnell with NASCAR was ready to to have the press conference and yes you're right still very concerned still very scary when you hear the word serious condition but when he said the doctors at this point say that it's not life-threatening injuries, that was a, that was a very huge relief for everyone in the industry. Boy, it really is the theme of the day on this Tuesday, February 18th, sports that are in the news cycle for all the wrong reasons, Ross. You've got the NFL with the Miles Garrett, Mason Rudolph headache. You've got Major League Baseball with the botched handling of Rob Manfred from the start to the finish in the entire sport, voicing its frustration with the Astros. And now NASCAR, the one way they're always on national news programs and talk programs and podcasts like this one because of a terrifying accident. Not a good sign of the state of that sport. No, and it's interesting, Dave. I I don't really follow NASCAR, but I did go to Daytona once. And I met a bunch of the drivers before the race, which, by the way, I thought was crazy. It was like an hour and a half, two hours before their Super Bowl. And I'm just like chilling with them, talking to them. I, I was just surprised. I mean, before the Super Bowl, I would not want to be talking to some random dude. You know, who I didn't know who he was, but they're just kind of used to it, I guess. And then, you know, when the race actually starts, I'm down in, you know, pit row. I could not believe how close they are to each other as they're driving that fast. And I am stunned that they don't have more accidents than they do. Stunned. Because I just don't know how it's possible. 
to be going that fast around that many other cars in that tight of a space and not, you know, oh, I, I, you nick this one, nick this one, turn in the air. I mean, it's, I'm amazed it doesn't happen more often. Yeah, it is. It is a terrifying sport, but because of the tragic death of Dale Earnhardt, those cars and those harnesses are so incredibly safe. And all you need to know is that Ryan Newman walked away from that crash the same way Austin Dillon did several years ago at Daytona. They've tried to do a lot to keep cars from going airborne as well. That's something they will have to continually address. But you're right about the guys and the quality of dudes in that sport. And part of it is a lot of those guys grow up on dirt tracks and go-karts, and they don't grow up in AAU leagues getting sponsored by Adidas and Nike. When you grow up wanting to be a NASCAR driver, uh, for the most part, you grow up on the back roads with no fans on Friday nights, uh, low lights, no frills sports. So it tends to bring about a different kind of dude, a, a less high-maintenance athlete than we're used to. I'm very pleasantly surprised to hear you've been to a Daytona 500. That's outstanding, my friend. What in the world brought you to that? Yes, yeah, so it was 2004, I believe, and a teammate uh -huh. of mine for the Buffalo Bills, his agent or agent's friend was like a NASCAR agent slash um, helped facilitate a deal where a sponsor was the owner of a car, like had a car in the race. And so he invited three of us Buffalo Bills to come down. And I remember just walking around. I met Dale Earnhardt and Matthew McConaughey was there for some reason. I met him. He had some terrible movie coming out. Um, met Tony Stewart. Like, I met them all. And somehow they got me in, like, the pre-race meeting. And I was sitting next to Martin Truex. We were talking about the Eagles, like, right before the pre-race meeting. Like, it was... It was very cool. Very cool. And, uh, and then to talk to those guys, and they're like, and one of them, I think it might have been Earnhardt, said something like, man, I don't know how you guys do what you do. And I was like, dude, you're about to race like 150 miles an hour this far from guys. At least mine's <laughs> a human being. At least I yeah. know that, like, I'm not going to die. You know what I mean? And uh, it was funny because he's a big Redskins fan and good friends with uh, Chris Cooley. So I was talking with him about that. Uh, so it was neat. It was neat. I mean, they, they really, all those guys really like football. Well, I was certain it was your Joe Gibbs connection that was the reason he went to Daytona because, of course, the legendary Washington Redskins coach, now the legendary NASCAR owner, he owns the car driven by Denny Hamlin that has won now three Daytona 500s and two straight. Joe Gibbs dominating the sport of NASCAR today the way he did the NFL so many years ago. Joe Gibbs, a legend in two sports. Hard to think of many equivalents uh, in the history of any major sport. So that'll do it for us on a Tuesday. We'll see you on Hump Day for Ross Tucker. I'm Dave Briggs in Denver. See you tomorrow. Hey, everybody. It's Ross Tucker. Thanks for listening to the Home and Home Podcast. Remember, you can watch or listen live every day from 8.30 to 10.30 a.m. Eastern Time exclusively on the Radio.com app or on the web at Radio.com slash home. 
We really need new phones. T Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge apply. Ctmobile.com.